I want to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, and we'll be looking through verse 30. We're going to be looking this morning at a passage that um, is very familiar to all of us, I think, especially verse 28. And um, as, far, as far as biblical texts are concerned, it's probably one of the most popular verses that's usually taken out of context. And so there's a, there's a series of them that are, are used in that way. In, in a lot of ways, it's used in a way that's not intended for Paul to use it. Um, and what, what I'm, of course, the, the part that I'm talking about is in verse 28, where it says, "And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose." And so I think that all of us are familiar with that that passage, and maybe we have probably used it to encourage someone at some point of, of time in their life. And and in in a way, it's kind of become somewhat of a cliche. It's just um, it's just kind of a verse that we use and we kind of throw out there without really giving a lot of thought and a lot of understanding of what it actually means and how it can be helpful to people in their, their time of need. But one of the great things that we're doing as we work through the Bible together, so taking the book of Romans, is that we're always trying to take everything in context. So we're not just coming to Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, we're coming to Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 after going through Romans 8 and really everything that's preceded that and what's going to come after that. And so we're hopefully, as we look at this text today, it may give us a, some fresh eyes to see the meaning of it and how Paul intended to use it here in this text and how it was used, and as you should use it, to give encouragement to people who are going through some difficult times in their life. But one of the things that we have to remember when we do use this, this passage of Scripture, that it, it does have a specific audience and has a specific target. And we'll talk a, a little bit about that here in just a moment. But when we use this, this passage, it really needs to be used with respect to believers. Right? So it says, for all things work for the good of those who love God and call to his, to his purpose. And so it's, it's, uh, it tells us who the good works out for, for those who love God and who are called to his purpose, which are, are believers. And so it's not just a general statement that we can give to, uh, to any person to encourage them in their time of difficulty. It's really specifically applied to uh, people who are following the Lord Jesus Christ through, uh, through faith. And so I hope as we, as we look at this text this morning that we'll be confronted with it and we'll be able to see it in a fresh way, maybe a way that we never thought about it before, and how it, it really is a text that, as we understand it more, that it really can give us some encouragement as we go through the very difficulties that we may face in the context of our life. So, as we encounter Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, here's what God's Word tells us. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to open up your word and to hear 
truth from you. And so, Father, I pray that you will just give us a heart of understanding, a mind of understanding, that we can be receptive to all that is shown here in this text. And I pray that as I preach and as I proclaim your word, that I'll be faithful. Keep me faithful to what your word says. And more than anything, may I completely disappear and may that all that people see today is your word and your son, Jesus Christ, and the beauty and the glory of the Lord. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we, we look at this passage, if you remember from where we were last week, that there was a, a series of words that kind of made up the, the, the structure or the unit that we, we talked about. And that word was groanings. You know, various times throughout Romans chapter 8 and uh, verse 18 through 27, that there was basically three divisions in that text, and all of them were connected to the idea of groaning. And so what Paul was really speaking of in that, that, uh, that context, is really gives in verse 18, is for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So he's still on this topic of this suffering and this glory that's going to be revealed to us. And then he, he moves on into verse 27, and he talks about the groaning of the Spirit, how he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And one of the things that the Spirit of God does when he intercedes on our behalf is that the purposes of God would be fulfilled in us. There's an, there's an ultimate aim, there's an ultimate goal that we're all moving forward if we are in the Lord Jesus Christ, if we're believers today, and that's for the hope that's going to be revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ in the last days. We, we talk about that as it relates to our glorification or, our, or being glorified, so to speak, and that relates to the idea of how God is going to give life to our mortal bodies, that we are not going to be raised in mortality, but we're going to be raised in immortality, and sin and death will no longer have a hold on us as believers. And so the prayer, the, the prayer of the Spirit, the intercession of the Spirit is toward that purpose and toward that go. And so Paul continues that thought as we look at verse 28, and he, he starts it with a familiar phrase that we've seen several times. In fact, this is the fifth time in the final use of this phrase, which is, and we know. And we know. Um, in fact, it's the third in this section. And what this is, it's a skillful way of bringing the hearers along with him and appealing to their knowledge that they should know this truth. And so it's just another way for Paul to say, okay, lean in here. I want you to listen to this. This should be something that you already know, but let's listen to it again. So what is it that we know? What is it that Paul wants his hearers to know? What is it that God's word wants us to know? We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and are called to his purpose. Did you know that? We should know that. These believers should know that. And it's a truth that we should know and we should really grab hold of and anchor ourselves deep in this glorious truth that all things God works for the good of those who love him. Now, the general statement is that all things work for good. 
Now, this statement is not a trite cliche. That means that we should not despair because every cloud has a silver lining. Or it doesn't mean that when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. It speaks to the depths of the eternal knowledge, wisdom, power of the gloriously sovereign God. All things in context refer specifically to the suffering in the previous verse and includes what's also cited in, chapter, uh, in verse 35. If you look with me in chapter 8 and verse 35, it says, What shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And the use of sword means should death separate us from the love of God. So when Paul uses this phrase, all things work for the good, really what he has in mind specifically is what these believers in the Lord Jesus Christ in this period, in this time, are going through, and they are suffering. Now, they're not suffering illnesses, or they're not suffering financial setback, but they are suffering because they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, because they have faith in him. Because they have embraced Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they are now suffering as a consequence of that. In fact, these are the groanings that characterize living in this present age as the believer awaits the consummation of all things. And the statement assures believers who withstand all things that suffering for the Lord Jesus Christ cannot sabotage the good that God is working. Now, one of the things that I, I really want to make an emphasis here is I've, I'm, you know, this all things is not just kind of a general statement, but it actually applies specifically to what these believers were going through here in this, this, this uh, context, in this history. They were suffering for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Paul uses this word all things, that's what he means. But I don't want to minimize it because I don't think the text tells us to do that. But whenever you're going through whatever difficulty that you're going through, that you can include this in the all things. But I think it's important for us to remember what it was that these believers were actually going through. Because typically what we include in this all things really doesn't really amount to anything. You know, when we think that we're really suffering or we're really going through terrible things, that it's probably not as bad as we're making it out to be. But as we live in this life, we obviously will encounter suffering. We will encounter real difficulties. And so Paul is making this statement that all things work for the good of those. So God is working all things toward a direction or go, and what is that direction? It's to good. Now, good does not necessarily refer to what is typically considered good, such as health and wealth and comfort. The good relates to the believer's final salvation in and through the Lord Jesus. So the good is shown throughout this chapter, as we see in chapter 8, in verse 11, he who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. That's good. And then in verse 17, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Being glorified together is the good. Verse 18, the glory which shall be revealed in us. That's the good. Delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God, as we see in verse 21. Eagerly waiting for the redemption of our bodies in verse 23. This is the good that Paul is speaking of. This is the ultimate good. This is to go 
All things are working for this, for this good. But I also think that the good can encompass what we receive now as believers faithfully follow the Lord Jesus. The psalmist praises this very thing in Psalm 145 in verses 15 through 16 when he says, The eyes of all who look expectantly to you, and you give them their food in due season, you open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. But the good I want us to really grab hold of is the good, the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, that when he comes again, that all things will be made new. And that includes us. Now, I, I, really, I don't really think that here as, uh, as American Christianity that we really understand or really grasp how good that really is. Um, you have to think about what these people are going through in this context, in this suffering. They don't know what it's like to have comfort. They don't know what it's like sometimes to, you know, where, where's my next meal going to come from? Uh, th- these are all things that we take for granted. And so for them, when they thought about this good, they were thinking beyond that their hope was in Jesus Christ, in the resurrection of their bodies, and the, the complete demolishing of all sin, all suffering, and all death. So we need to have this kind of hope. This is the only kind of hope that's going to anchor us in our times of difficulty. This real hope that Jesus Christ is coming. He's going to make all things new. Now, as it relates to this verse, as it relates to good, I think there's a misconception sometimes about how good is being used here. Now, what this verse does not say is that the all things are good. Listen to me. It does not say that all things are good. What it does say is that all things work for the good of those who love God. So neither does it imply that everything which happens in this sinful world comes directly from the hand of God as if he is the author of sin and suffering and can be blamed for the wickedness and sin that you encounter. Any sickness such as cancer, natural disasters, terrorist attack, and all other calamities are not good in and of themselves. And it is important to distinguish what is good and evil, to distinguish what is part of God's good creation, and what is the consequence of the creative order being subjected to futility and bondage because of this fall of sin. Yet at the same time, God is sovereign over his entire world, even the forces of evil. In fact, Martin Luther famously said that the devil is God's devil. That even though that the devil is is uh, causing all kinds of havoc and 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 leading to temptation, God is still in control of the devil. God is still sovereignly in control over all things. In fact, God's control over evil is so complete that he can claim it for his own purposes. That's the sovereignty of God. That's the glory of God. That's the beauty of God. Where evil comes in, where sin comes in, to wreak havoc, God can still use it for good. Now, the sin is not good. The suffering is not good. But God can take it and use it in a way to work good. And that's, that's a distinguishing thing that I'm trying to make. That not all things are good, but God can work all things for good. 
And this, this, the distinguishing mark of this is actually seen in Genesis 50 and verse 20. And I think we know the context of this. This is a verse that we all should know. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. And then they have that meeting. They finally meet Joseph. They don't know what's happened to him. And God has been with Joseph all along the way. God has been providentially orchestrating all these events where Joseph rises to the top of the scale of all of Egypt. Nobody over him except Pharaoh. There he is, confronts his brothers. They're scared for their life. And this is what Joseph said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. What they did was sinful and evil, and it was not good. But God worked it for the good. It wasn't just about Joseph. It was really more about God orchestrating the events of salvation history. As he preserved Israel, he preserved the people of Israel, and then what came out of Israel? The Christ. The Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. And so you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So I think it's important for us to make that distinguishing mark that not all things are good, but God does work all things for good. And what a wonderful and glorious God that he is. So we shouldn't think about when we, maybe there is some sinful behavior that has disrupted our life, but it actually leads to the good. We shouldn't be glad that we fell into that sin. We shouldn't think about that sin as being glad, that failure as being good. It was evil. It was wicked. God was not the author of it. But God can use that for good and for his ultimate purposes. Now, this, the other thing that I've already mentioned here, but I want to just dig into it just a little bit more. The general statement that all things work for good does not apply inclusively. It's not just for all people. It is only valid for those that are described here in verse 28 as who love God and are called according to his purpose. In fact, in the original text, in the, in the biblical language, the phrase, those who love God, is placed at the beginning of the sentence for emphasis. In fact, it's actually rare that the New Testament sees or describes believers as those who love God. Typically, believers are portrayed as the beneficiaries of God's love grace, justification, or mercy. But this description portrays the believer who has responded to the love which God has poured out into their hearts. And then the next description of believers gives an indication as to where this love for God originates. Love for God originates in God's gracious calling of them to himself. As I said, they're called according to his purpose. And the word called was used at the beginning of the letter to describe God's to describe Paul's calling as apostle and those to whom he writes in verses one, uh, chapter 1 and verse 6 through 7. They are also called. called. The idea of called is that God has extended the call, his gracious call, and he's calling people to himself. And this call comes through the gospel and through the working of the Holy Spirit who convicts people of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We don't just wake up one day and we decide, I'm going to start loving God today. God graciously calls us and he draws us to himself. And we love God because God first loved us. Love does not originate within us. It originates in the heart and the mind of God. And God extends that love to us. He calls us to ourself, calls us to himself, 
And through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we then become those who love God. Those who love God. So we see that all things work for good. As we move on and look at verses 29 through 30, that brings us a question, I think, that is answered here in this text. How do we know? How do we know that all things work for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose? Now, Paul says that we know this, but how do we know this? And so verses 29 through 30 answers this question. We know this because God's purpose, the believer's glorification, stretches back into eternity, is being actualized now in the life of the believer and will continue into eternity. And this is described in the succession by five distinct verbs to show the outworking of the believer's final salvation in eternity past, in history, in the here and now, and into eternity. And so that, let, me, let me just look what these verbs are. He foreknew, he predestined, then look in verse 30, repeats the word predestined, he called, he justified, and he glorified. He foreknew and he predestined in eternity past. He called and he justified now in history, and he will glorify in the coming future. Right, so he gives us this, this blueprint, if you will, of how God is working. How do we know that all things work for the good of those who love God? Because God has been working this into eternity past and will work this into eternity future. And now it's being played out in the life of these believers. It's being played out in our life now. So let's begin with the two, two verbs related to God's purpose before time. Now, this, uh, the first is whom he foreknew, those whom God foreknew. And we see this word used in Acts 26 and verse 5, and it's used to describe how the Jews already knew about the conduct of Paul's life. So they knew something beforehand about the conduct of Paul's life. It's used like that another time in the book of Second Peter. But its usage in this verse is more than knowledge beforehand. The addition of the relative pronoun denotes intimate and personal knowledge. So if you'll notice how it's, how it's framed, for whom he foreknew. Talking about the person, talking about the believer, for whom he foreknew. So it's intimate and personal and relational knowledge about that person. So that's, it's not a coldness of God just mere knowledge of something in the future, but God knows his own, or he lovingly knows his people even in eternity past. He knows those that are described in verse 28 as those who love him are, co- are called according to his purpose. Now I want you to think about this description regarding God's knowledge in the opposite way. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 23, he's just part of the, the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about, many will say to me in that day, Lord, did we not do this? Lord, did we not do that? And then how does Jesus reply? In that day, I will declare to them, I never knew you. But this is not talking about the absence of God's knowledge or that this escapes God's knowledge about who these people are, but relationally, those whom God knows are his. So relationally, he knows those who love him 
were called according to his purpose. And when does this knowledge take place? It takes place in eternity past. So God is already at work before we even existed. God is already at work. And so that's the confidence and that's the hope that we can know that all things work for the good of those who love God. Because as this life is going on, and we see that it looks like, it looks like God's plan is not going the way it should. It looks like that he needs to adjust things. Right? God's not on the fly coming up with plans like that. And eternity to pass, God has orchestrated the plan of salvation. In eternity past, God knew his own people. Then he uses the second verb, he predestined. And predestined to say that whom God knew relationally, he also appointed beforehand or determined beforehand. Along with foreknowledge, predestined is used with rarity in the New Testament. In fact, both of these words are actually absent from the, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint. And the reason for this may be because they are acts that rest with God before time exists. They are a mystery in many ways to our temporal and finite, uh, our, us as temporal and finite beings. But the emphasis of both of these words is God's gracious initiative to call his people to himself. God was at work in salvation before time. The Lord Jesus... Death in history was so certain that we will worship him into eternity as the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. And Peter Peter preached on the day of Pentecost that the Lord Jesus was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. That in eternity past, God was bringing about his work of salvation. In eternity past, God knew His people. Now, there's a lot of discussion that goes on the backdrop of this about the idea of foreknowledge and predestination and what that means. And we're not going to get into that today. But as we move forward into Romans chapter 9, we're going to talk about this a little bit more. But for our intents and purposes, I want us to remember something as we talk about these discussions. There's a lot of debate about the idea of predestination. But when Paul wrote this text, he was not concerned about the debate. What Paul was writing this for is to comfort these people and to give them the assurance that God works all things for the good of those who love him. To let them know that God is in control, that God is sovereign, and that God is working all things. That even though it doesn't look like that in this life, even though the all things, and all things characterized, all the suffering they're going through, That it doesn't look like God's working that way, but all these things are working for the ultimate good of of those who love God. Now, the other thing that you should think about this is what is the purpose of this foreknowledge and predestination? And we find that in verse 28, that believers in the Lord Jesus might be conformed to the image of the Son, and that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So the purpose is for us to enjoy the future glory of resurrected and transformed bodies like that which Christ now has. So the purpose of this foreknowledge and this predestination was that we, that we might be conformed to the image of his son, thinking about the future hope that awaits us. 
And then ultimately, that the Lord Jesus Christ might have preeminence. That's the idea of being the firstborn. That the firstborn received all of the rights, all of the inheritance in that culture in, all, in that day and age. So that Jesus Christ might be preeminent in all things. That's the purpose of this. Everything is about the Lord Jesus, the exaltation of Jesus, the worship of Jesus, and the glory of God. So we, we, it's, it's a way for us to think about the perspective that we, we need to have, that when we go through these all things, that this is ultimate leading that I might be conformed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that these all things is so that Jesus Christ might have preeminence. So that may be the prayer that we need to have, as we pray and as we plead and we ask God to help us, God, take this away from me, take this all things away from me, but also to pray, Lord, in this time, conform me into the image of your Son. In this time, may Jesus Christ be exalted in my life. May he have preeminence in my life. For that's the purpose of all these things that they go through. Now, being, being conformed to the image of the Son is also relevant for earthly life. So there, there's a main focus here about being conformed to his image, being glorified, being changed, taking on immortality. That's what, that's what the purpose, that's what the go is. But also, this being conformed actually takes place here and now in this life. We actually find that Paul says this in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, where he says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. So being conformed to the image of the Son also means sharing in the glory of the weights, but as we wait, it also means sharing in the suffering and knowing that all things work for the good of those who love God, just as the suffering of Jesus on the cross for our sins was for the good, we must also embrace that our suffering is for the good, and it leads to being conformed to the image of God. And then it leads ultimately to the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the idea of the firstborn. And then after the statement about Christ that he makes there in verse 28, Paul returns to his strings of verbs, picking up with the last one. So he he puts predestined is used again. This is the last verb that he used. So he's returning to his thought, getting back to his train of thought. But he uses it again, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he justified. So called and justified is the work of God in the context of history. As we already mentioned, to be called is God's gracious calling of us to himself through his gospel, through his word, through the work of the Holy Spirit. And, of course, we spend a lot of time talking about what it means to be justified. Be justified means that we are declared righteous. So now, in history, we can say that we are righteous. We are the very righteous that God demands of us. And we are righteous, not because we have something in ourselves that makes us righteous, but we are righteous because it's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because of his righteous life. It's now applied to me. So we are now in Christ, and that's how God sees us. He sees us in Christ, and when he sees Christ, what does he see? He sees righteousness. And sometimes this idea of justification, this righteousness, is talked about an alien righteousness. By alien, it means it's not ours. It doesn't belong to us. It's outside of us. 
So we've been declared righteous. We've been made righteous because of Christ's righteous life. He lived a perfect and righteous life. He didn't just die for us. He also lived for us, fulfilling the law for us. And, of course, the other part of justification is in order for God to be just, sins must be punished. And so on the Lord Jesus Christ, on the, on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ became sin for us. So it's interesting how that transaction works, isn't it? We become righteous, but on the cross, Jesus became sin for us. He became my substitute and your substitute so that we might be the righteousness of God. And so these are all aspects in history. He called and he justified, and then the last into eternity future, he glorified. Remove sin forever. A new body. The glorious future that awaits for those who are in Christ to be glorified in him. This is the purpose. This is the goal. That we might be glorified. And as we are glorified, that Christ might have preeminence in all things. So, all things are working for the good. And the timeline of the work is when? When did it begin? In eternity past. And it goes on to eternity future. God is in control. God is sovereign. And everything in your life that you're going through today, God is working for the good. You may have heard of this name before, maybe maybe read some of her books, but a lady by the name of Joni Erickson Tata. And if you don't know that name, I encourage you to know it and find books that she's written. Uh, I don't endorse a lot of uh, inspirational books, but these are the kind, if she writes the book, I, I say get it. But she's a speaker, she's an author, she's a singer, but she's also a quadriplegic. And she's been confined to a wheelchair for more than 40 years. On, October, on July 30th of 1967, when she was 17 years old, she dove into the, uh, to the ocean after misjudging the shallowness of the water. And she had, fra- uh, she had a fracture between her fourth and fifth cer- uh, cervical vertebrae and became a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the shoulders down. During two years of rehabilitation, according to her autobiography, Joni, she said she experienced anger, depression, suicidal thoughts, and religious doubts. However, during occupational therapy, she learned to paint with a brush between her teeth and began selling her artwork. She also writes this way, although for most writing tags, she now relies on voice recognition software. When people ask her why God allows suffering, she often says, God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And what does he love? For people to enter into a relationship with himself and to become more like him. All things work for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Let's pray.